Negroni Segliato, how COVID changed the culture of aperitivo, and why you should get Chinese food even though you're in Italy. This week, we're in Milan. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we try the best dishes and drinks from around the world. This week, we're in Milan with foodie tour guide and blogger Jackie DiGiorgio. But first, if you like food and travel, be sure to rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. It's super easy to do, and it really helps other people who like food and travel find us here at Destination Eat Drink. Thank you so very much. Jackie DiGiorgio is an American who's made her home in Milan for almost 10 years. Jackie gives private food tours of the city she calls home and writes an excellent food-focused blog called A Signora in Milan. Karen and I were in Milan recently, and we met up with Jackie for a coffee and some tiramisu and other treats at one of her favorite spots. It was a lovely conversation, so I asked Jackie to come on the podcast, and luckily, she said yes. We talk about why Milan is an underrated destination, its amazing multicultural food scene, and why there's more Japanese restaurants in Milan than Trattoria serving risotto. We also do a deep dive into aperitivo culture and how it's changed since COVID, and Jackie shares some of her favorite gelato spots in a city I think rivals Florence for the crown of best gelato city. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Jackie DiGiorgio, thank you so much for being on Destination, eat, drink. It's great to get to talk to you, and I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brent. I'm so pleased to be here. You're originally from New York, and you moved to Italy about a decade ago or so, and you didn't initially land in Milan. What made you ultimately choose to live in Milan as you've done for so many years now? So I originally moved to Rome. The reason being, I, I, you know, Rome just, it was a city of my dreams. I loved traveling there. I loved visiting there when, when I lived in New York. And I had a lot of friends there as well. And I I just thought it would be nice to go to a place where I had friends, where I had a, a community already. And I, I still love Rome. It's still a city of my heart. But I was spending a lot of time in Milan during that year, and I just felt drawn to the city. I, I felt a belonging. I think it's it's a little more fast paced. It's much more cosmopolitan than Rome. And having come to Italy, having lived and worked in New York for almost 10 years with, with a background in, in you know, business, communication, PR and events, I felt like Milan was a little more my pace. So I I felt compelled to to move there after the, the year in Rome. And I still love Rome. I don't mean anything. I don't mean any disrespect to Rome, but Milan is just more of my vibe. Yeah. When the city speaks to you, that's where you ought to be. You know, when we moved to Portugal, we first came in, you know, we'd been to Portugal before, but when we came here, um, we decided to move to this uh, city called Setubal and Karen and I weren't sure, you know, we said, well, maybe, but you know what? 
we have flexibility. If we don't like it four months, six months, a year from now, we can go somewhere else. Now we can't imagine living anywhere else. But when you have that city that kind of speaks to you, you know that you've landed in a place that you can call home. And that's really nice, I think. Exactly. Yes. And it's nice for you as well. It's just, you understand what I mean? It's just a feeling. It's so hard to articulate it, but it's just something, you know, your, your intuition, your gut, it's just speaking to you and you just know this is where I belong. We were lucky enough to have coffee with you when Karen and I were in Milan recently. And you said something that really resonated with me. I was describing to you how I was having a little bit of trouble really wrapping my arms around Milan as a city, you know, understanding its personality. And you said to me, you got to think of Milan like you think of New York City. It's a multicultural capital with people and cuisine from all over the world. And once you said that, I kind of felt like a switch was flipped and I really felt more comfortable in Milan. Well, that makes me so happy to to know that. I yeah, I could see the thing about Milan is it's sort of overshadowed by the fact that it's in Italy. So when when you look at its fellow fashion week cities like London, New York, and Paris, you look at how widely covered the the food and beverage scenes are by various media. But Milan remains you know, overlooked and undervalued. And that really upsets me because I believe it's Italy's best unkept secret. But I think the the reason why is because it doesn't fit the mold for most people's preconceived ideas of Italy. And you can't think about it as Italy because if you are going to Paris, if you're going to New York, if you're going to London, it's you're saying, I'm going to London. I'm, I'm going to the, the city. You're not really saying I'm going to France. I'm going to the UK. And I think... That's how more people have to think about Milan and and just stop thinking about it as Italy because it's a multicultural international city, like you had mentioned. And it's a lot of people say it's more European than Italy. It's like the people say it's the southernmost city in Northern Europe. (laughs) That's a cool (laughs) saying. I like that. Well, let, let's talk, uh, you know, this is, this is a food podcast, so let, let's talk a little bit about some of that cuisine that has made its way to Milan from other corners of the world. Um, we had an experience where one of our waiters, we, were, we struck up a conversation with him and he told us that his girlfriend was Filipino. And I said, is, is there, this is when we had first arrived, I said, is there a large Filipino community in Milan? I didn't know. And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. So I looked it up. 40,000 Filipino live in Milan. And then we ran across a church service. We were just walking by this church, and it was all Filipino people coming out from the service. So that's one big ethnic community that's there. I got to imagine they've got some great Filipino restaurants. But talk to me about some of the uh, other influences or maybe the Filipino influence, whatever you want to talk about, Jackie. Well, I I know in terms of the international influences, one of the biggest communities is the Chinese community in Milan. And I know when people think of the Chinese in Milan, they're so quick to think of of Florence and Prati, which is outside of, of Florence. But Milan has one of the oldest, if not the oldest population in Italy. It dates back to the early 20th century, and some even say even earlier than that, the late 19th century. And what's so interesting about that is that it predates the revolution. 
so when they arrived here, what did, you know, among other businesses, they started with food, which is what a lot of immigrants do. And we have this vibrant Chinatown with amazing restaurants, but all of the excellent Chinese restaurants aren't solely limited to Chinatown. There are some really great places, one classic from, I believe, 1980 or 1981, it opened called Il Giardino di Giada or Giada's Garden that's near the Duomo. And that's a classic as well. And that's actually the restaurant that Chinese people in China will hear about and want to come there. For instance, the owner had told me that he heard he had recently had had two guests. One was a Chinese person from Paris, a Chinese person from Brussels or living in Paris and Brussels, respectively. And they this place was recommended to them by fellow Chinese people to come and eat there. And I think that's so interesting, especially like I was saying before with Italy, you don't, you would think like, why would I go to Milan and eat Chinese food? I'm in Italy, but right, right. that's not, you know, if you were in New York and someone told you go to this Chinese restaurant in London or Paris, and you heard there were great Chinese restaurants there, you would go. But in Milan, it's like, but I'm in Italy. I'm not going to go eat Chinese food. Right, right. But they should. (laughs) Yeah, they should. I was walking around Chinatown and I was just, I I was looking everywhere. I was like, this is so cool. I really love the vibe there. We lived in Honolulu for a while and there's a a great Chinatown there. Um, But this Chinatown didn't remind me of that at all because there's all of these tiny little restaurants, like almost barely, you know, wide enough for two people to fit in shoulder to shoulder. And it's just like, there's the kitchen. There's the uh, there's the counter and there's where you get your food. There's there's no tables. There's, it's just like, here's your food, you know, go do your thing. And there's all of these places. Of course, there's sit down restaurants, too. But it just it was kind of it was kind of incredible. All of these places that are, um, you know, all stacked together uh, in this Chinatown. I don't want to make it sound like everything is crowded and mashed together, but um, all of these small little pop up, almost pop up stalls were kind of mind-blowing in a way. I agree with you. I what what I love particularly about that is just how how different all the places are. There are down restaurants and I would say within the last 5 years or so, a lot of places have opened that are what you were describing, the windows and the counters that you go and just get some street food, something you can eat with your hands really quickly while you're walking or you can just stand there and eat and continue on your way. But what's really interesting about it is how nestled in between all of these places are some historic shops and and destinations like there's the Cantina Isola wine bar. Oh, I'm so glad you brought them up (laughs) because we went to that place on your recommendation and that place is incredible. Talk about it a little bit, Jackie, because I love Cantina Isola. It's an epic wine bar. It's been there since, I believe, 1896. And you just, it's one of those places, what I love about it, for as long as I can remember, it's open all August long. It's even open on Ferragosto, the August 15th holiday. So it's during the summer months, it, it it's sort of, um, you know, it's a, it provides a comfort for people who are in town and want somewhere great to go. But that aside, it what it's really famous for is it has something like 2000 bottles of wine and they will open any bottle of wine you want and pour it for you by the glass so that you can taste it and, and drink it which i think is really cool because a lot of places won't do that and it has 
an indoor section, but the indoor is really small, but outside there's a covered seating area, which if you walk by there any night, especially on the weekends, it's always full. And then there's always people standing around it just with their glasses of wine on the sidewalk, drinking and enjoying, you know, the aperitivo hour. And also, if you get hungry, what you can do is you can go across the, the street, across Via Palo Sarpi to La Ravoleria di Sarpi, which is a dumpling place that opened, I want to say, in um, maybe like 2017, but I, around then. And you can go get the dumplings. And if you manage to be one of the rare few who get a table inside, they're happy to let you bring any food from outside in to, to eat there. But you can just go across, get the dumplings, bring them back with you. And it's just so chill. And it, it's really some of the best vibes in the city. I think that they it, it's a place that really encompasses the spirit of Milan, especially Milan today. I was talking to, I think, the owner of uh, Canteen Isola. Uh, his name is Luca, I believe. And he was enjoying lunch, and I, he, he had helped us before. And I said, oh, man, that what you're eating, that looks amazing, those tomatoes. And, you know, I wasn't trying to... <laughs> I wasn't trying to mac on his lunch, but the next thing I know, he serves us a little crostini with fresh sliced tomatoes, olive oil, and salt on it. And I was like, these are some of the best tomatoes I've tasted in my life. Um, I was just I was just loving the hospitality that we felt uh, when we went there. It was a great spot. And I understand they've got a really nice aperitivo. We were a little bit early for aperitivo, but I understand they've got a nice aperitivo there as well. And... We should talk about aperitivo, I think. Yes. First of all, for folks who don't know, I, I think if you've been to Italy, you know what aperitivo is. But talk about the importance of it when it comes to Milan and food culture, because it's it's kind of a different thing there, right? Yes. So Milan is where I... You know, the, the idea of drinking something bitter before your meal is something that goes as far back to the, the ancient Romans. So that's a tradition that's been carried on throughout the centuries. The aperitivo itself originated in Piedmont when um, Antonio Benedetto Carpano created the first vermouth in 1786. And that's sort of where the ideas that planted the seed for a lot of other sort of, he wasn't quite a mixologist, but more of like um, a, a licorist <laughs> is a word that people use sometimes okay. that he inspired, it prompted a lot of other people to create their own drinks. So that was sort of what, you know, spearheaded the aperitivo. But in Milan, in the, I believe it was the 90s, the idea of the, I believe when a lot of people think of the Italian aperitivo, the idea of a big buffet spread comes to mind. Right, and you right. go and, and you just fill up your plate with food. So the idea, whenever you have an aperitivo in Italy, even if you weren't at a place that's having a big buffet, you will always get something to eat because the idea is that food and alcohol should be paired so that obviously so you don't get drunk. And the idea of the aperitivo is just to open up your stomach and have something before dinner so you really don't want to fill up during dinner, but then the sort of buffet craze began in Milan in the 90s, and it sort of took things to a whole new level. And there, there was a huge 
it brings the question of quality into play, especially before COVID, especially you would go to any of these places where you were having the aperitivo, you pay eight euro for a drink. And then this massive, bountiful buffet is at your disposal and you can pick and choose from meats and crostone, focaccia, uh, fried foods like the olive ascolane, the, the fried olives from the Marche that are stuffed with meat, arancini, and this and that. But the thing you have to keep in mind is that if you're paying eight euro for a drink and getting all of this food, it's probably not the, the highest quality. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so then when COVID happened, a lot of these places in the interest of health and keeping the, the spacing and the social distancing, instead of putting out the buffet, they bring the food to you and they just give you, a, you know, a big plate for the table. And that's pretty much all you would get with, with your, your drink. And they started limiting the, um, what you receive. But at the same time, like, I don't think a lot of these places raise the quality of the food. Mm. But there are some places where you can, I, going back to this idea of the cocktails here in Milan, like I, I, I noticed, especially before during COVID and even now that the aperitivo culture of this, the city started to shift, especially towards natural wine. And a lot of these natural wine bars opened where you go, you get a bottle of wine, you don't get free food, but you order your food and you pay for your food and that's your aperitivo. And a lot of people have been going in that direction, the Milanese especially, because they're really concerned with, with quality and are starting to, to consider quality, not only of what they're, they're drinking, but of what they're eating as well. And especially if you're drinking a nice wine, you should have nice food to go along with it. Absolutely. Do you have a place or two, like if you were going out with friends for an aperitivo, where would you go in Milan? Ah, so I absolutely love, 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 love Barbasso, which it's actually pretty close to, to where I live. That's the place where the Negroni Spagliato was created in 1972. And the, the story with that drink is it says that the owner accidentally poured Prosecco in the Negroni, which a Negroni, you know, it's equal parts gin, Campari, and vermouth, but that he accidentally poured Prosecco in place of gin, and then the drink was born. But recently, it's been said, and I've heard this in years before from some people in the, the beverage industry, but the owner has recently confirmed that his father made it on purpose because more women were coming out to drink. <laughs> but I think that's a great, yeah, <laughs> it was lighter. And I think that's just a great place to go. And, and you, you have to book, I would say, make a reservation. And if you can get a table outside in the ideal weather, do so. And just go get the Negroni Spagliato, the big one, the grande. And they bring you, you know, some chips and crostone and other little bites to eat. And I, I think that's just a lovely place to experience the, the spirit of Milan. You have people from all different walks of life there. There's, you know, the old timers who, who've been going there for years. And it's also really trendy with the fashion and design week crowds. Like during design week, it is like the busiest place in town. And then, you know, there, there's, you know, locals go there, tourists. It's a really nice mix of people that I think really captures the spirit of the city. 
And for another place, I, I think that is great. If you wanted um, another recommendation, I love Rita on the Navigli. It opened 21 years ago, and it's a really great place because the Navigli has a reputation as you know, everyone goes there to drink, and there are a lot of poor quality places there where you have the watered down spritzes and whatnot, and the the food isn't of quality. But if you go to Rita, it's a place that never did a buffet. They always brought you the the food, and it's really withstood the test of time. It was in the Navigli before it was cool, and it's located on a bit of a side street that you actually you you have to go there to to reach it. It's not a place you're going to pass by, and it's just an epic classic institution, or more of a modern classic, I would say. And I would highly recommend that place for an aperitivo. I like the Navigli neighborhood, but man, it gets crowded with tourists. And I had the same observation. I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you uh, confirmed it. That it looked like there were a lot of tourist places that were kind of um, tourist traps. We had, but we had a very, I thought a very nice aperitivo at uh, Ugo. I, I don't know if you like that place or you don't. I, I hope you don't dislike it because I thought it was good. And they brought a really nice aperitivo, and they were very accommodating to different uh, dietary restrictions and the quality of the little plate that they brought out to us, I thought was very good. And they had interesting cocktails. I agree with you. I think that is another nice place to to drink around there. It's one of the rare few that you will have a quality aperitivo. So I'm glad you you went there and that you liked it. Let's shift gears to gelato because ah. I absolutely love the gelato shops in Milan. And I didn't know what to expect, but I guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't be surprised, but man, there were, it's not like you have to go searching out good gelato. Of course, there's mediocre gelato places too, but there are many, many really, really good gelato places in Milan. And I was like thinking to myself, man, uh, Milan is rivaling Florence for a uh, crown of best gelato city in Italy. What what are some of your favorite gelato shops and uh, and places to go to get a good uh, to get a good cone in Milan? Yes, I agree with you. There are so many wonderful places for gelato in Milan, and it's and I there's not a lot of, of tourist traps, believe it or not. I think you will find more of those towards the center where you know the gelato is just unnaturally colored and piled high and glossy and stiff. And when you see that, that's the number one red flag. But in Milan, I feel like every place is focused on quality. And every time a new place opens, you, I, I go there and I sort of do the, go through the, the, the checklist in my head of what makes good gelato. And I'm like, natural colors, it's kind of, it's not super puffy. It's not glossy. And it, you know, and I'm, and it seems like every place that opens nowadays is adhering to this, the, is adhering to these, to the philosophy of good and quality gelato. So I would highly recommend Artico. The owner, Maurizio Poloni, has been making gelato since 1981. And he opened Artico in Isola in 2012. And he actually has a gelato school where a lot of the great gelato makers in the city have honed their talent, such as at Latte Neve, which is in the Navigli as well. That's another great spot to grab gelato. 
I also love Gelato Giusto, which is kind of not far from where I live around the Porto Venezia area. Vittoria Bortolazzo is the owner, and she trained at Le Cordon Bleu in London. She got the pastry certificate there. So she really does this. She likes to call it like an a high pastry inspired gelato and it's always exceptional and it's never too sweet or cloying. And I just love that. And my, I love going there in September and because she does this excellent Concord grape gelato that I always just get (laughs) completely on its own without mixing it with other flavors. Awesome. You know, you said, you know, away from the center of Milan, I think this is kind of a neighborhood place because it's, you know, it's not near any tourist attractions, at least none that I saw, was this place called uh, Gelateria Paganelli. And we went there and this might have been some of the best pistachio, pistachio gelato I've had in my life. I mean, it was incredible. I, Karen was, uh, Karen was filming me for a video and I I think my knees were melting as I was eating it. It was so good. I guess that's another place. See, there's so many good places that it's hard to, to include them all, but I absolutely agree with you. That's one of the top spots as well. That's a historic spot. It opened in 1930 and the owner now, Francesco Paganelli, that was his family who founded it. And what I love about it is that it's just, it still maintains that old school charm, but it, it's so contemporary. He does really great liquor flavored sorbets as well. I, I know in the past he's had um, a Franciacorta flavored sorbet. It's the sparkling wine made using the classic method in, in Lombardia. It's about an hour outside of Milan. And yes, the pistachio is insanely delicious there too. That's a really, yes, that's such a great spot. Oh. Speaking of uh, liquor flavored, we went to a gelato spot called, I, I think it was called, well, on the awning, it said something like uh, champagne and gelato or gelato and champagne. But I think the place is called uh, Cerdini. They have champagne infused sorbetto. And I thought it was outstanding because I ta- we had the pear and then Karen got the plum. And it was obvious to me that they were using fresh fruit in there. And I thought it was outstanding. I really, really liked it a lot. Um, It's kind of in a, like a strip mall or something, but um, I thought the quality was excellent. I really, really liked that place too. Have you been there? I have not been there. I have heard of it and I, I do need to go check that out. All right. Well, when if you give it the Jackie seal of approval, let me know. <laughs> and, um, I will. I'm sure it's just as good as you're saying it is. So <laughs> I, I will let you know as soon as I go there. I'll send you a picture. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, you know, you were saying how how difficult it is to kind of define Milan as an Italian city because it's such it has such an international vibe. But I just interviewed a lady, uh, Anya. She's originally Russian. She's now a New Yorker, and she's a culinary writer. And she's been writing for decades now. She came to Russia, uh, came to the U.S. as a child from Russia. She's got three James Beard Awards, and she recently wrote a book called National Dish. And she examined national dishes in seven different countries. And we talked about various countries. Um, But of course, you know, when it comes to Italy, she chose pizza as the national dish. But it gets me to thinking, because this is kind of what I do when I travel. I'm like, 
what is the national dish for this city? Or what is the city dish, if you want to call it that? What is the signature dish for a city? And I'm, I'm just curious, it, do you think there is such a thing when it comes to Milan? Is there a signature or a classic dish um, that we need to get when we come there? There, yes, there are some classic dishes. Absolutely, they. I would say, I think one of the the most popular is the risotto alla milanese or the milanese risotto, and that's made with. Traditionally, it's made with you know, saffron, which gives it that distinct gold color. There's also traditionally beef broth in it as well, and and bone marrow. But yeah, um, I discussed this actually in an episode of my podcast. The, with Cesare Battisti, who's the chef of Ratana, and Gabriele Zanatta, he's a journalist. They wrote a book together called Contemporary Milanese Cooking. And they talk about how traditionally Milanese food is so heavy. So a, a lot of dishes these days are adopted to contemporary palates. So with the risotto, for instance, maybe like Cesare, for instance, he starts his with olive oil instead of butter, which is what's the traditional way to start the risotto. There, you know, when you look at dishes like the, the Milanese veal cutlet or the costaletta alla Milanese as well, that's another heavy dish that's usually fried in, traditionally for that to be a true costaletta, it has to be fried in clarified butter. There's the ossobuco alla milanese, which are the braised veal shanks, and they're often served alongside the, the risotto. There's a dish, the buseca alla milanese, or the tripe as well. And so these are signature dishes of the city, but they're, you're not going to find them at Every place you go to, there's probably more Japanese restaurants in hmm. Milan than there are trattorias serving all of these dishes. And I think it has to, again, this has to do with, with contemporary palates and how the food is really heavy. But also it's such an international city as well that people's tastes are different. Like there, there's a lot of, you can go if there's vegans or whatnot as well coming to the city and they're not going to be able to, to eat these dishes. Brings up an interesting point. What about uh, vegan and vegetarian friends who are coming to Milan? I'm sure there's there's plenty of pasta dishes to choose from, but where would you steer them if they come to visit you, Jackie, and they say, well, where are we going to go? I'm not going to eat veal. I'm not going to eat uh, bone shank. I'm not going to eat bone marrow. Uh, where should we go? Well, what I love about Milan is that so many places are are flexible. So if you let them know, especially ahead of time, that there are dietary restrictions, like at Ratana, if you're vegetarian, they can make you a risotto alla milanese with um, with vegetable broth instead of the the meat stock, which is, which is nice. There, there's a nice restaurant along the Nevigli called Ventotto Posti or 28 Places, and they always have. It's not strictly vegetarian, but there's always a large selection of vegetarian and even vegan dishes on the menu there. And another great spot to go is Joya which is the first vegetarian Michelin-starred restaurant in Europe. Um, I, a pasta madre in Porta Romana that, that is a great restaurant as well, and you, you'll always be able to find something meat-free there as well. There's a, one restaurant that's really interesting. is called Tripa. 
which means, um, you know, tripe in Italian, but it, the, the word also has a double meaning and it can dub as, as when you're describing something that has a lot of substance. And it started when he opened the restaurant, the chef Diego Rossi and his business partner, Pietro Caroli, they, the signature dishes were the vitello tonato or the veal with the tuna sauce, the fried tripe and the bone marrow. But they recently decided to take the restaurant in a new direction. To, and instead of meat being a starring role on the menu, they are giving it more of a supporting role in some of the, the dishes. So like, for instance, one dish that I had there that really reflects this was a um, and there was grilled eggplant with just a, a thin layer of lard on top of it. And it was served over the salsa verde or the green sauce that's traditionally served, the green sauce that's traditionally served with meat dishes. And it, it was incredible because the eggplant had such a meaty texture. I, I think it's interesting that this restaurant that was founded on this idea and, and became so popular for its meat dishes, which they still have, those three dishes aren't going anywhere, have decided to put meat on the back burner and give it a smaller roll on the plate. But that, and that being said, you can still also let them know of your preferences and they will remove any meat objects or meat items from the dishes you order if you're, if that's your, your preference or restriction. Well, these are all fantastic insights into uh, your adopted city of Milan, Jackie. I, I'm so glad we got to uh, talk about this for the podcast because we had such an interesting conversation when I was in Milan, but I've got some more stuff I'd like to talk to you about uh, about Milan, and I'm wondering if uh, maybe we can uh, have you come back next week and we can talk about uh, coffee culture and talk about pastries and some other fun stuff to do in Milan. Would you come back and visit us next week? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. That's Jackie DiGiorgio. What a bright and charming person she is. So glad she agreed to come back next week. You can find Jackie at aseniorainmilan.com. I've also got a link to her site where you can find out more about her private food tours in the show notes. Get that at radiomisfits.com slash DED251. And there's links to all the great places Jackie recommended as well. That's it for this week. Like I said, next week, it's more Milan with Jackie, including brioche with caramel lime filling, local wine, and quick espresso versus specialty coffee. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. It's open for business 24-7. You can sign up for the monthly Destination Eat Drink newsletter while you're there. There's also a new story I just wrote there about the National Tile Museum in Lisbon. It's a place a lot of visitors overlook because it's not right in the center of the tourist attractions of Lisbon, but it's well worth a visit. You can read about it at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. There's also some nice pictures there too. And I posted a video about four great neighborhood bars in my city of Setubal, Portugal. It's very nice, great places to hang and, uh, you know, just neighborhood places. Some people might call them dive bars. Not me. I'm too polite for that. Just click on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or you can watch it right on YouTube at DestinationEatDrink946. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who likes his champagne sorbet made with scotch, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you 
down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 